Glory be to thee, O God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, who hast called us unto thee to be thy people, and hast surrounded us with thy mercy and protecting care. We praise thee that we have a glorious certainty in Jesus Christ, that the gates of hell cannot prevail against us, and that we have the certainty of victory in time and in eternity. Therefore we come to praise thee, to magnify thy holy name, and to rejoice in all thy blessings. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our subject today is the Ascension and Session. The Ascension and Session. Ascension, A-S-C-E-N-S-I-O-N, and Session, S-E-S-S-I-O-N. The scripture is Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, and the beauties of holiness in the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. On one occasion, Colini, the great leader of the French Huguenots, found himself besieged and surrounded by a Spanish force. And the general of the Spanish force sent him an ultimatum. Surrender or be wiped out. Colini expressed that tremendous and triumphant faith which so often characterized him and led him at this point and at other points in his life to victory. His answer was a very simple one. He said, We have a king. This was his confidence. Christ was his king. And he served under a victorious ruler. The Apostles' Creed has this article. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And in terms of this, the church can say age after age, we have a king. A king who sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
This article of the Apostles' Creed states two important doctrines which are very closely related. The doctrine of the ascension and the doctrine of the session. The ascension. He ascended into heaven. The visible passing of Christ from earth to heaven in the presence of his disciples on the Mount of Olives, 40 days after the resurrection. This is the doctrine of the ascension. The ascension was predicted by the Old Testament in many passages, such as Psalm 24 and 68, and in particular Psalm 10, which we just read. It was predicted also by Jesus Christ. John 6.32 and John 20.17 and elsewhere. It was also prefigured in the Old Testament by the translation of Enoch and also of Elijah. The doctrine of the ascension is a central doctrine of the creed and the scripture. The doctrine of the session he sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. This doctrine declares the perpetual presence of our Lord's human nature in the highest glory of heaven, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The body of Jesus is therefore locally and physically present in heaven. Hence, it is the Holy Ghost whom he must send to men. These two doctrines have been, through the centuries, very much attacked. They were savagely and bitterly attacked in the early centuries by some of the Gnostics and Manichaeans. And they propounded all kinds of peculiar theories, the central one being propounded by the Hermians and Seleucians that Jesus Christ never was truly incarnate so that his body was merely an assumed one and in the ascension he left his body in the sun and his divine nature went up to heaven. Now this of course is the sheerest of nonsense. The purpose of this concept we shall see subsequently. It was identical with that which the humanists now assert when they doubt the ascension and institute another doctrine. The doctrine of the ascension is of critical importance to faith. Without it, the light goes out of Christianity. The ascension is the presence of Christ in heaven, his exaltation. It marks the reversal of man's verdict on Jesus Christ. And it was the open declaration before his disciples that whereas men thought they could bind him forever with death, he in virtue of his nature and of his perfect righteousness 
had destroyed forever the power of sin and death and openly ascended into heaven. As a result of the ascension and the session, the church, the redeemed of God, are brought into the divine presence in closest communion with God the Father. Christ, in his physical body, is locally present in heaven. He is at the right hand of God the Father. We physically are locally present here in this room. But by virtue of the ascension of Jesus Christ, we are also present at the right hand of God the Father. In that, as members of Jesus Christ in mystical union with him, as members of his perfect humanity. Where Christ is, there we are also. So that our prayers are heard, as intercession is made possible. For when we pray in Jesus' name, that prayer is heard immediately in heaven. And it is the prayer of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. When Jesus Christ at the Last Supper spoke with his disciples concerning the necessity of that which must be, his trial and crucifixion, his death and resurrection, and his ascension, he said that the purpose of all these things was transcendental. It looks beyond the earth. It looks to his glorification, his exaltation in heaven. That where I am, there he may be also, at the right hand of power. Therefore, because of this doctrine, The church can declare the enthronement of Christ as mediator in messianic majesty. Jesus Christ, the perfect man, has been enthroned physically and locally on the throne of omnipotence. St. Paul, in speaking of these things, declared in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We therefore as Christians never speak of being alone. The Old Testament, David in Psalm 22, expressed the desperation of loneliness inspired by the Holy Ghost. He was 
the hunted man, a price on his life, hunted down like an animal, fleeing from cave to cave, from wilderness to wilderness, never knowing when he slept whether he would wake up again. And in his despair he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And inspired of the Holy Spirit, the psalm expressed far more than his experience. It prophetically expressed the total isolation of Jesus Christ on the cross and the agony of the crucifixion. But that cry can no longer, never again be the cry of a believer. Christ nailed it to the cross, experiencing it himself to the uttermost. And he as our head, our federal head, we as members of his body who is present at the right hand of power are now immediately represented at the throne of God. In terms of the ascension, the exaltation, the enthronement of Jesus Christ, we are present with the Trinity. And therefore Christ with the triune God is in warfare in all evil as it raises its hand against it, us and is in judgment over it. And the whole of the book of Revelation gives us a picture as Revelation 6.16 declares of the wrath of the Lamb of the wrath of Jesus Christ, the Incarnate One, against the ungodly, who have declared war against his people. Therefore, he is at war with them. Moreover, the ascension is the presentation of the first fruits to God the Father, according to 1 Corinthians 15.23. The presentation of the first fruits is an important ritual of the Old Testament, one which is basic to the whole of Scripture. According to the Mosaic Law, all first fruits must be presented to God. They were brought symbolically to the temple. The first sheaf of grain, the first basket of fruit, The first calf, the first lamb, the first colt, the first child. And if a man wished to keep these things for himself, he had to redeem the first fruits by paying the full value thereof. And that which was not redeemed was under sentence of death and its neck had to be broken. And what this meant was simply this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, the people, and they that dwell therein. All things are the Lord's. And therefore, everything must be presented to God, and the first fruits stand for the totality so that in the presentation of the first sheaf of wheat, 
the whole harvest was dedicated to him. In the presentation of the first of the livestock, the whole was presented to him. In the presentation of the first child, all the children were presented unto God. And the tithe was the acknowledgement that these things were held as a trust from God. And one of the conditions of possession and blessing was that a tithe be returned to the Lord. It was his breath. There was no gift to God except above and over the tithe so that one could not speak of having given a gift to the Lord's work unless it was beyond the tithe, the ten percent. The first of everything belonged to God. All things that were used apart from God were under God's judgment. And man could not say of any corner of the universe, of any corner of his land, of any piece of his produce, of any child of his household, this is mine, and I am free to do with this as I choose. All of it was under God's law. The earth had to be used according to God's law as a stewardship. The produce of thereof had to be used as a stewardship. Children had to be reared in the nurture and admonition of the Lord according to his law. And therefore, all things belonging to God, the first fruit, symbolically had to be presented to him. This is the meaning of baptism. In baptism, children are presented to the Lord. And this is why they can be presented as infants. Because they thereby are returned to God from birth. And the parents acknowledge, this child I have received of the Lord. And therefore I acknowledge that I can only rear this child under God, under his word, under his law because the child is not my property but God's gift to me and is totally to be governed not by my whims but by the word of God. Now the ascension according to St. Paul 1 Corinthians 15, 23 is the presentation of Jesus Christ as the first fruit. What does this mean? Paul explains it. The old humanity of Adam rebelled against God. It refused to present itself or anything that it did as the first fruit to God. It said in effect, the earth is mine and I will be the Lord thereof. Therefore it is under sense of death. The law says that that which is not presented must have its neck broken. It must perish. But Jesus Christ came as the last Adam or the second Adam, the fountainhead of a new humanity. And all who are members of Jesus Christ belong no longer to the humanity of Adam, 
to the humanity that is born to sin and die, but to a new humanity, the humanity of Jesus Christ. And we are now born in him, born again in him, to life and to righteousness, and are victorious over death. Jesus Christ, having risen again from the dead, presented himself as the first fruits of the new creation to God. That new creation which began with his resurrection and will culminate when the old creation is done away with and heaven and earth are made anew. And as Paul declared in Romans 11:16, if the first fruits were holy, the lump also was holy. The first fruits represented the symbolic presentation of the totality of all. So that when Jesus Christ presented himself to God the Father in his ascension, he presented himself as the one who had in perfect righteousness kept the law, who had destroyed the power of sin and death. And so all we who are members of his body therefore had in him this perfect righteousness this victory over sin and death and therefore can come boldly to the throne of grace making all our wants and wishes known in prayer because he hears us this was the ground of confidence in the early church Christ had ascended in triumph and he is waging a victorious war against our enemy. All the saints are exalted in him. Every believer has the assurance of victory. This is why the preaching of the ascension, the doctrine of the ascension, was a particular joy to the early church. It would take days to go through the sermons of the early church fathers and to describe or to repeat their ascension sermon. Because this was a subject they delighted to preach in. They were under savage persecution from the empire. But in the face of that persecution they could say, and especially each year after Easter on Ascension Day, Jesus Christ having risen again from the dead and having ascended into heaven was their assurance of trust for he now had been exalted to a position of glory. St. John Chrysostom declared in one such sermon we who appeared unworthy of earth had been led up today into the heavens. We who were not worthy of the preeminence below have ascended to the kingdom above. We have scaled the heavens. We have attained the royal throne. And that nature on whose account the cherubim guarded paradise, the 
day sits above the cherubim. The doctrine of the session is closely related to this. It is impossible indeed to discuss the ascension without the doctrine of the session. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And the right hand is the position of trust and power. He is the Lord and Judge. And there is no limitation on his power. The session signifies the omnipotent power of Jesus Christ. The certainty that because he is there, he shall wage war against all his enemies, against the enemies of his people. And in the great ascension and session, Psalm, Psalm 110, David declares, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Your enemies shall be made your footstool. They shall be broken, they shall be humbled, to become no more than a tool in your hand. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. Christ is our leader, as our king. He shall convert all our enemies into his footstool. shall strike through them as a man strikes through butter with a knife. We scientific planners in omnipotence and power 
governing man and nature as absolute law. History, therefore, involves inescapable warfare. Man was created to be a vicegerent, to exercise dominion under God over the earth. But he sought that dominion apart from God and in contempt of God and in warfare against God. Therefore, there is warfare between God and man and between God's redeemed people and the ungodly. And there are two sessions. The triune God with the incarnate Jesus Christ is a council of war against the ungodly and a council of peace for us. And on earth there is the humanistic councils of war against God the Almighty. Humanism is the epitome of the enemy's position. Its first inroads into this country were in the form of Unitarianism. And the Unitarians replaced the sovereignty of God with the sovereignty of man and ultimately abolished God from the picture. One Unitarian poet and hymn writer, William C. Gannett, wrote a poem on what everybody's true last name is. And he said everyone's last name is God. And he said in the, in the concluding lines, it's Mary, John, and Katie. It's Mary, Maud, and Katie, John, God, and Willie, God. In other words, this is our true name. Another Unitarian poet in the days just before the Versailles Treaty was signed when the world was waiting for word of Versailles spoke of this treaty which represented to him the epitome of humanism as to the new law and the new salvation of man. And a world of perfect peace was going to be made then and there in 1918 by the planners of Eric And he said, humbly, forgivingly, then shall the nation seek them together a Sinai on cross. Hear the new law in a trice of the peacemakers. Frame a new world for the peoples of God. More than that, he spoke of the peoples, not as the peoples of God, but as the new man God who would go onward upward through the ages shaping nature to its plan other expressions of the same spirit have not been quite as poetic because when man applies his humanistic dream to real life he creates hell on earth and the two major revolutions of the modern world have been products of this humanistic dream. The French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. In the French Revolution, the revolutionists sat down and having gained power, they, in their session, began to decide how many people should we have in order to plan the future properly. Should we eliminate 50% or 75% or 90% of France in order to have the necessary unit for effective planning, 
to rebuild the country anew. And then they proceeded with their executions in the reign of terror. In the revolution, the Bolshevik revolution of 1917, the same spirit and the same faith was at work. Those whom you can change, educate by force. And those who cannot be changed, liquidate and liquidate and liquidate. And they are still liquidating. And today we have the same humanists in our midst. Reshaping this nation, planning to move peoples according to their whims, arrogating to themselves the right of gods to decide concerning life and death. In a conference in the past two weeks in San Francisco, a scientist, Joshua Letterberg, a Stanford geneticist, attacked savagely the Christian prohibition of abortion and insisted that science decreed that a proportion was perfectly all right and he declared and I quote we cannot insist on absolute rights to life of a piece of tissue just because it bears a resemblance to humanity unquote and of course, if these planners have the right to say that of a fetus, they can say it of us. What absolute right to life do you have? Your God who says you do does not exist. Either Christ's exaltation and his ascension and session are believed or men will seek their own exaltation in an ascension into omnipotence and total power. And they will sit in session over us as the total judges of the earth. And a man must choose which he is to believe. And the ascension and session of Jesus Christ or the ascension and session of the elite planet. A man cannot confess both Christ and socialism. As Calvin said concerning the ascension and session, Christ was inaugurated into the government of heaven and earth. Therefore, man cannot be sovereign over heaven and earth. But this is the essence of the humanistic, socialistic state. It is the enthronement of man into the government of heaven and earth. And the consequence is warfare against God and Christ. But in this warfare, there is no possibility of victory for man. They imagine a vain thing when they conspire, when they take counsel together against the Lord that is anointed. But neither 
Is there any hope for men? When the face of this great war fails to see that a war is gone, stand either in the direct line of fight or linger in the camps of the enemy. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that in Jesus Christ we have been given a place in the divine session, that in Him we can come to the throne of grace boldly according to Thy word, and make all our wants and wishes known, knowing that Thou, O Lord, hearest us. That thou art our shield and our defender, and our exceeding great reward. Our God, how great thou art, how glorious thy providential care. And we thank thee. In Jesus' name, Amen. Are there any questions now? Because, as I stated, uh, it is because Jesus Christ is locally present now in heaven and as far as his physical body is concerned he sends the Holy Spirit as his representative to be on earth so that uh, the uh, descent of the Holy Spirit of course at Pentecost followed the ascension that the, uh, Jesus Christ represents uh, uh, symbolically the uh, first fruits of the Jewish yes. uh, How about the uh, Feast of the Week and, and the, and the symbolism between that and the Holy Ghost? Can I that? The Feast of Weeks.
far as I know, and I doubt very much that I've ever been baptized, the uh, mechanism of it, is that necessary or is it a spiritual thing? Both the mechanism uh, and the uh, spiritual meaning are necessary. In other words, we must truly uh, yield ourselves unto God and we must be baptized because this is the commandment of God. And the great commission was, Go ye unto all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So that both are necessary. Now, why it is necessary, you can see perhaps concretely through a simple illustration. It is not enough to say to a woman, I love you spiritually with all my heart, mind, and meaning. The feeling is there. There must also be the external act of a wedding or else she's going to be dubious. So, you see, the two go together. You cannot separate the physical and the spiritual. Both are inseparably linked. I just noticed it uh, this morning, but I didn't have a chance to read it. I'm aware of this plan to produce such a Bible. I oh yes re-edited then just well my question with, with regard to it is the scholars are all in the liberal camp so it will be neither a Protestant nor a Catholic nor a Jewish version it will be a humanistic version and it will attempt as each successive translation is done to water down the meaning a little more. And you are getting increasingly the use of these uh, very peculiar readings, some of which have not been introduced yet into the text. For example, one which I believe two years ago Easter was first used in... Uh, many a Catholic church in um, all your national council churches and on radio programs did not say he is risen but he has been raised uh, he has been revivified and other similar perversions now this is the kind of thing that is totally without warrant, but each new translation departs a little more from the received text and introduces another heresy. Well, they show that when St. Jerome was given the job of uh, putting the books in the Old Testament together, they didn't have much trouble with the new. Totally without warrant, but each new translation departs a little more from the received text and introduces another heresy. Well, they show that when St. Jerome was given the job of uh, putting the books in the Old Testament together, they didn't have much trouble with the new. 
Well, they show that when St. Jerome was given the job of uh, putting the books in the Old Testament together, he had much trouble with the new. They struggled, of course, with such as old because they said they had the, the Greek translations of the Christianized Jews. And then we had the uh, Hebrew translations of the um, rabbis and scholars who kept their own versions in their tabernacle. And the difference was in the number of books that were in the Greek that were not in the original and uh, so the thing, you know, the Us. 
But nonetheless, the scripture is emphatic that at this point, this was a total isolation because he became the sin bearer for man even though he was without sin and felt the full weight of total isolation from God. Now, no man will ever experience this isolation, but becoming the sin bearer for all the elect, he was therefore feeling the full weight of their gift. But after this cry, there was also the note of victory. This is not the last word on the cross. And the last word was, For Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit. From Psalm 31. And that was a word of perfect peace and triumph. Because it came from a psalm which was the evening prayer of Israel, which every child learned at his mother's knee and said as his bedtime prayer. So there was both the total isolation and victory. The best exposition of the entire uh, of the Passion Week is by Dr. K. Skilder, S-C-H-I-L-D-E-R, in three volumes. And there are very few works ever written to equal that. There's only one thing wrong with Dr. Skilder's work, and that is that uh, you finish reading it. It's so memorable as an experience to read it that uh, you feel sorry when you come to the last page. But I recommend that for a very detailed analysis of uh, this aspect as well as every other aspect of Passion Week. It's Dr. K. Skilder, S-C-H-I-L-D-E-R, three volumes on the Passion of Christ. I believe Christ in his suffering, Christ on trial, and Christ crucified are the titles of the three volumes. No. The origins of the Baptist doctrine that you only baptize when a person is mature come in basically a rejection of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, uh, on the part of some people, is seen as uh, a book that they accept only because it's in the Bible, but you pay no attention to it, and you regard the law and everything in it as essentially Jewish. And so... Uh, and also, you don't like anything that's connected with the Hebrews, so therefore you simply disregard it. You say, oh yes, it's a part of the Bible, but uh, it's not the part we pay attention to. With some, as the disciples in the Christian church, or Church of Christ, uh, they are almost savagely hostile, some of them, to the Old Testament. And they speak of New Testament Christianity. This is all they really believe. So, Believing just that, they don't know the rest. They don't realize what the law requires and that baptism 
was simply the rite which replaced circumcision and it was required of children and therefore instead of seeing the doctrine of the covenant they put it on an entirely individualistic basis they make salvation dependent upon your personal act of faith and they do not see what St. Augustine taught the doctrine of prevenient grace so that uh, since you do it you wait until you're old enough to do it and you don't see God's requirement of it you don't see its relationship to the covenant you don't see its relationship to the doctrine of the first fruits because you refuse to accept a good deal of scripture yes <laughs> I know he was circumcised he was circumcised on the eighth day now when he was baptized it was by John the Baptist and when John the Baptist began to baptize since this was given as the sign of of the new covenant by Ezekiel everyone was excited and John was out in the wilderness he had gone out into the desert and was preaching there because he was in a sense saying your cities your countryside everything in the country is finished it's under God's judgment the axe he said is laid at the root of the tree it's going to be cut off from the root up so it's dead therefore you must leave so he was pronouncing the death sentence on the old Israel of God then he was saying that the new age had come and therefore the new sign of the covenant which was to replace circumcision had now taken its place now they were baptizing in the Old Testament Gentiles Gentiles were baptized and circumcised both because this indicated that they were to come in as it were by Christ's work even as the Jews through sacrifice represented it but the great ingathering of the Gentiles was to be with the coming of the Messiah so when John began to baptize Jews and Hebrews alike it created a sensation because they said well either the Messiah has come or this is the great prophet who is to be the forerunner of the Messiah but after that baptism was of children and of course in the book of Acts we are told that the whole household over and over again was baptized both old and young now the Baptist church as you said uh, most Baptist churches not all many of the Baptist churches began to realize that their doctrine of baptism was not altogether correct so about a generation ago some of the churches began to take a step towards uh, infant baptism with the dedication service of children which is a kind of uh, oh, a kind of a forerunner of baptism in their thinking and is connected with it so it was a halfway acceptance of it
Yeah, so in the dedication service, you see, they go through everything that infant baptism calls for, except that they won't call it baptism and they won't baptize. So they've taken a halfway step towards it. Now, the kind of thing I describe is not, uh, does not characterize such baptism. Those who believe in what I described as the historic Baptist position will have no dedication. They are the ones who reject the Old Testament thoroughly. Now, not all Baptists, and apparently those you grew up among, re reject the Old Testament. The yes, but the disciples group, for example, are most emphatic about it. Most emphatic. And some are extreme at this point. I have talked in the past couple months to some who uh, uh, their attitude uh, is that if you quote from the Old Testament, uh, you aren't a Christian. How dare you use that book? It's just retained because it was inspired by God, but it's totally without any significance for us now because it belongs to the Hebrews. Therefore, no Christian can use it. Now, this is the historic position, but most Baptists aren't, have outgrown it very markedly in recent years. So that which I described and that which you experienced are different. The sacrifices were declared ended at the crucifixion of Christ because he was the great and the true sacrifice and all these were typical or symbolic of his sacrifice. Therefore, there could be no more sacrifice of uh, bullets or lambs or kids or anything else. Now, the temple continued the sacrifices until it fell in the Jewish-Roman War 66 to 70 A.D. But when Christ died on the cross, you remember the veil of the temple was rent in twain. The temple was declared desecrated by an act of God so that its work was thereby finished, ended. Our, yes, one... Wasn't Calvin and Lindley and two of the other uh, reformers put to death for Judaizing and some of the charges were placed against the 11th No, they were not put to death. And there were a uh, few accusations of Judaizing, but then that charge was leveled by heretics against uh, the church throughout the centuries. It was leveled against the church in the early period, in the medieval period, in the Reformation period. And uh, it isn't Judaizing to accept the word of God. One thing more, just a minute or two, and then we will be dismissed. I picked up recently the National Fourth Reader. I had previously the Fifth Reader. This was a series used before the Civil War in this country this particular edition was a revised one just after the Civil War. And the uh, <coughs> kind of reading that characterized the fourth grade reader is really quite surprising <laughs> because the selections are from 
Washington Irving from Charles Dickens, who was then just a young writer, from, uh, well, Longfellow, of course, from Samuel Johnson, from uh, Thomas De Quincey, from James Fenimore Cooper, Daniel Webster, Everett, Edward Everett, and this is unfortunate, uh, Channing, the Unitarian, from uh, Joseph Addison, one of the great English writers, from, uh, oh, quite a number of prominent writers of the day and earlier, William Cullen Bryant, Proctor, Reed, and also from Whittier, Hannah Moore, William Copper or Cooper, James Montgomery, Thomas Moore, and also from Shakespeare. They read in the fourth grade reader three parts of Shakespeare's Tragedy of King John. I also have a poem here by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, also sung by uh, Tennyson, The Charge of the Light Brigade. That was in the fourth grade reader mm -hmm. a century ago. Public Public, oh yes. Yeah. Public and private, you see. In those days, almost all your schools in the country were private or Christian schools. The public school movement, when these readers first came out, was not more than about 10, 15 years old. And these were used in all schools alike. But as the public school movement took over education after the Civil War, these national readers were dropped. And you developed another series, and by the end of the century, you had, of course, the McGuffey readers, which was a further drop. But compared to what we have now, the McGuffey Reader, of course, is quite advanced. This is why, in those days, when you graduated from the eighth grade, you had a good liberal arts education. You are better educated very often than your college graduates today are. You had a better command of the English language. You had a better knowledge of the great classics. I'm quite sure of it. <laughs> well, with that, we stand dismissed.